Circular Views, podcast series on circular economy by WBCSD. Hello and welcome to Circular Views. My name is Brendan Edgerton and I'll be your host for this series of podcasts. On today's podcast, we focus on circular policies and how these can support businesses and other stakeholders in their transition to a circular world. Circular policies are diverse and emerging quickly. The WBCSD Circular Policy Workstream is helping companies understand this complex landscape, but also formulating forward-looking policy asks. We'll be discussing circular policy priorities and why effective policy making is crucial for making this circular economy a reality. Today, we're privileged to have two experts who've been involved in the development of WBCSD's newly published policy brief, driving the transition to a circular economy. I'm pleased to introduce Eva Carranza, Head of Circular Economy for Wholesome, and Jonathan Cocker, Environmental Markets at BLG. Welcome to you both. So to kick off the discussion, let's start with you, Eva. Uh, working in the construction materials sector, can you tell us a little bit why it's crucial for policymakers to develop an enabling environment for circular transition? Mm. Well, the only way to make circular economy work at scale is if an ecosystem is really created between different players, where you can first of all design out waste and whatever waste there is in the system or it's coming from the system can be used from one player to the other. And now I believe we have globally technical know-how and capabilities to replicate this, like this theory, but we have two main challenges. And on the one hand, with regulation and standards, where it doesn't seem to be following the innovation pathway. And on the other hand, we have a lack of incentives that would accelerate the circular economy solutions being used across the full value chain. And if we could have an an environment that enables these collective actions, we will be able to ensure that there is a fair benefit distribution of the materials when they are really kept at the highest level of their value. And that is the only way to ensure that transition to circularity. That's great. Thank you, Eva. And kind of building off of that, Jonathan, you know, from a legal perspective, why do you believe it's crucial for governments to develop these types of policies? Well, uh, I think we've seen in the in the voluntary sector, in the pre-regulated sector, we've seen mixed results. Uh, we have first movers, but we haven't seen uh, a, a mass adoption of circular economy in the way that it, it, it needs to be adopted. And I think that indirectly uh, disincents those first movers from taking the kinds of business decisions that uh, benefit all of us. And then I think, I think the other thing I would add to what Ava was talking about was around uh, around enforcement so we've got uh, we've got varying standards we've got you know inconsistent regulatory schemes but we also have uh, variance in terms of enforcement and and without robust consistent enforcement uh, we're not going to have the kind of circular economy that we need and that I think uh, lies on the shoulders of our policymakers. That's a, that's a great comment. I think that's often a, an overlooked part of the discussion is on the enforcement. It's one thing to come up with the policies to make sure that they're actually being uh, followed is, is just as critical. So, uh, Eva, coming back to you, uh, I mentioned a, a bit earlier that WBCSD, uh, with the help of a number of members, including Wholesome, uh, recently published a policy brief highlighting key policy priorities for the circular economy. For your company or the industry, 
you know, what would be two or three policy asks from this report that you're looking to highlight the most? So if I look at the, uh, the business where I am on the construction materials industry, I think the top three would be first to incentivize the adoption of secondary materials, which will really require adequate performance standards for the reuse of these recycled materials. And on a second level, I would say phasing out landfills, because this will be the only way to ensure proper waste management hierarchy is followed. And you know, as Jonathan mentioned, there is a lot of law there, but there is a lack of enforcement of this. And on a third level, what is a good policy as for our industry would be not looking only at what is there, currently being uh, business as usual, or let's say an incremental scale up, but really looking at supporting new technologies and investing in innovation that promotes really the reuse. So not only recycling, but going one step forward. So policies should also funnel investments in new and digital technologies to enable us to operate better, factories consume better, and at the end of their life, live better and smarter. That's great. And you, know, you touched on a number of different elements there within the policy realm, but uh, do you have uh, another example of where these types of policies could help facilitate the company's practices? Yeah, uh, a good example from my industry, it's looking at construction and demolition waste, you know, looking at extended producer responsibility. We have these take back systems. Now in construction, it's usually around for 30 to 100 years. And there has already been quite a lot being done in recycling, construction and demolition waste for many years, mainly as basis for the roads, you know, when you make new roads. But to increase the value of this recycled material, we have also developed a new cement that uses fines of that material in directly into the product. However, this cement, it's only possible to be commercialized at the moment in Switzerland. So if we could scale up this cement, which is called Susteno, outside of Switzerland, we would actually be improving the hierarchy of the recycling that we do. And that will really improve the material uh, usability and the reuse phase. Uh, that's, a, that's a very good example. Thank you, Eva. Uh, so, Jonathan, going back to you, I know you're an advocate of what uh, is referred to as outcome-based policies. Now, can you tell me a little bit more about that as someone relatively new on the concept? Yeah. So, so I think, you know, the, the, the position is really this, that, that we all have a shared interest in and seeing and seeing a, an absence of waste, the the closure of landfills, the um, the cessation of new landfills, the valorization of all materials uh, at end of life. I mean that's that's common, I think, in the circular economy. So so the question really is, how do we get there? And and one approach, and we've seen this, and I think I think Brendan, we've seen this as as sort of an outgrowth of the old product stewardship schemes, the old municipal. Mm. Uh, run schemes, and and that is a, a an, in, an inclination by regulators to do more regulation in order to see a circular economy thrive. And and, and part of the reason I think we see that is that uh, on the eco design side, we've never we've never really had success. So we've had we've had product stewardship fees, but no real financial incentive for individual companies to innovate. So 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 instead, what we've what we've seen over time is is really the regulator getting into industries in the name of circular economy, mandating 
how products are designed, what materials may be used, how efficient they may be, how to score uh, those products and uh, their durability. And, and, and all of these things is are certainly part and parcel of a, an approach, kind of a, a command approach, uh, you know, a, a prescriptive approach. But the, the alternative view, and I think the one that's worth talking about, is simply having an outcome-based approach. In other words, say to producers, at the end of at the end of the day, your product must have done X, and that includes to be recovered and uh, in in, uh, in respect of certain kinds of activities, or or perhaps better. Uh, uh, excluding certain kinds of activities. So for example, no landfilling of those materials, but, but, but a, a broad range of opportunity for companies to really handle the design and, and uh, secondary materials, resource recovery of those, of those products in ways that makes most sense for them. And so in, instead of saying, we are gonna, we are gonna be uh, with you in every step of the way producer, instead at the end of the year, you come back to us and show that you've done the exact same thing that we otherwise were going to do uh, prescriptively. You come back and just prove that you've done it. That's really the the focus of this of this approach. And I think it's it makes a lot more sense for business. It'll drive real innovation, real eco design, and and ultimately it, it makes more sense for everyone because uh, they, these are markets. I mean, these are commercial activities. This is not a waste sector regime. This is a an innovation scheme. This is a resource recovery scheme. So I think we have to switch the mindset from let's regulate waste to let's let business do what business does best. And let's just make sure at the end of the day that they can prove that they've done what they said they're going to do. Uh, I like that. Uh, a, a very different perspective on the typical conversations we have around it. Do you have any examples of how, you know, how this has played out or been implemented uh, as it relates to circularity? Yes, I, yes, I do. So in my home country of Canada, uh, we have we have exactly this regime, and we we call it a free market regime. Uh, we like to say it's the first in the Americas. Uh, it may be the first worldwide, and and so uh, in terms of the the per, the prescriptions on industry uh, for each sector, each material sector, the regulator essentially says get a verified certificate from uh, you know a certified party at the end of the year that that on essentially a one for one basis you have resource recovered the material you put into the market. And, and here are the, the few things that you can't do. And there's only a couple. And I think, I think we can argue about how broad that should be. For example, should there be certain kinds of thermal treatments? Uh, you know, should there be certain kinds of other exclusions? I mean, th these are, but, but these are really uh, arguments at the, at the periphery, at the core. It's really do, you know, figure it out yourself, ally yourself with whatever parties you wish, whether it's your competitors and or whatever service providers make sense for you but come back to us and, and just verify that you've done what you promised. And, and that has worked very well. And we've seen a lot of industry uh, innovation in this space because of this. And we're seeing producers say, we wanna reduce our costs for end of life materials. So we are going to, as a, as a small group, as a coalition, an interested group of parties, we are gonna do certain things to, to bring our costs down for end of life. And I think that's exactly what eco-design was intended to do and in my mind, that's the only way we're really going to see it thrive. Oh, that's that's a very uh, a very interesting example. Thank you, uh, Eva. You know the, what we're talking about with Jonathan is it's focused on the the outcome uh, based policies. But uh, even to get to that point, we need to all be speaking the same language. And and one of the challenges we hear again and again is the harmonization of waste, uh, the definition, classification. These issues come up quite regularly in policy discussions. So you know, from your perspective, why is it so important to streamline these definitions? 
Hmm. Yeah, it comes very often. And the reason it's very simple, huh? If we don't have a harmonized definition and actually a harmonized classification of the waste, so not only that it is waste, but what type of waste it would be, then we will not be able to ensure that it's managed on a way that maximizes that value that it has. Huh? So, you know, we, I hear a lot about talking with, uh, you know, having data sets and having like material data sets and material passports and so on. But actually, that's even one step forward. We need to get the basics right. And that's really on the harmonization aspect. And that definition aspect is really key. So in my view, harmonizing definitions and standards will support to find a fair distribution of benefits so that one waste material from a process or an industry, a player, a company can be an input or raw material for something else. And that's really the prerequisite to break the silos and drive that change. I like that. Yeah, it's a uh, deceivingly simple uh, yet complicated task to, to get that harmonization. But increasingly, I think we're seeing it on the radar by all stakeholders. So uh, yeah, keep, keep the calls up. Uh, and then I guess finally, Jonathan, you know, we're seeing more and more uh, pushes to integrate circular policies into broader sustainability frameworks, you know, especially in the run up to COP, uh, nationally determined contributions or NDCs or, or other national sustainability plans. In, in your view, why is this important? Well, look, I, I think we all agree that decarbonization has become uh, a, a seminal, if not the seminal issue. Um, and in fact, we'll see that at COP26 uh, uh, next month. Um, so, so I think we, you know, in, in the resource recovery sector, we have not done a, a very good job in highlighting the importance of resource recovery as contributing to decarbonization. And, and, and I, I would point again to the, uh, the fact that many, many companies, many governments have, have run uh, resource recovery schemes to date sort of uh, as silos, as something that doesn't contribute or, or and is not that relevant to the overall uh, environmental quality of their of their programs. And I think that has to change. Um, it has to change because there, there's clearly a link between waste and emissions. Um, and there's mm -hmm. and there's clearly a link between, uh, fr frankly, uh, good environmental stewardship and, and environmental health. And I think both of those things need to be highlighted. And, and I think with a push for EPR, in the resource recovery space, we'll see more companies uh, also driving that that kind of um, th those priorities and, and pointing out that that waste uh, is uh, is part of a decarbonization strategy, both at the front end and at the back end. Well, it's a, a fantastic message to conclude on. There, I think uh, it's one that uh, is coming up more and more, uh, but we certainly need to make that link more clear, uh, more tangible, and more quantitative. I'll say. Uh, in the future for, for companies to understand really how their circularity strategies can, can uh, also contribute to their climate change mitigation targets. So you know, with that, I want to thank you, Ava and Jonathan, for sharing your expertise on circular policy. Uh, we also appreciate your reflections on your active participation through the circular policy workstream with WBCSD. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. I encourage our listeners to visit the WBCSD website where you can find more about the circular policy work you can also download the policy brief at wbcsd.org and read up on our policy recommendations. And don't forget to subscribe to the Circular Views podcast on iTunes and Spotify. We look forward to you joining us again next time.